Hello everyone and welcome to When Life Gives You Lemons, our wee podcast about tackling and coping with some of life's challenges, hosted by me, Jenny McIntyre, and founder of Let's, Michael Byrne. Hello everybody and welcome to episode 10 of When Life Gives You Lemons. As always, I'm joined by Michael Byrne and today we also have with us Paul Elliott, um, from Mind Shift Experiences. Um, how are you both? Great, thanks. How are you, Jenny? Yeah. I'm good, Jenny. Thank you very much for asking. Good, good. Everybody enjoying the sunshine today? Aye, certainly are. We're in, I'm indoors now, but uh, it's been good. But uh, thank you very much for inviting me on to share my story. Um, first time I've done this, so um, it's a bit of a big, big moment for me, to be fair. But I'm looking forward to uh, sharing some of my experience with you guys. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on, Paul. Um, Michael speaks very highly of you, so um, I'm looking forward to having a good chat. Yeah, I paid them. I paid them up. Um, so <laughs> premiums are all paid up for all that stuff. So I no, much, not at all. No, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to to have Aye. you on, Paul. And just maybe thank you, Michael. Listeners kind of know the context of how we how we know each other. Um, Paul and I both mm-hmm. spoke at an event in February of this year, and yeah. first we do we do different things. I think we were both struck by the similarities of some of our experiences of the past, which they aren't yeah. the same, but uh, as you're about to hear by Paul's experiences. But I think, uh, as most people will know now, that when you when you go through some life events, it's kind of you know you've been to that destination of trauma and all of those things. So I think there's always a bond and a, mm-hmm. a commonality between things. So yeah, I speaking personally, John, it's a uh, Paul. It's an absolute pleasure. To have you on today and even more so that this is the first time you've really wanted to open up and talk about it yeah oh. i just think i just think michael it's the right time you mm-hmm. know it, you know i used to run away for this sort of stuff yeah. and I'm, I'm, I, I'm i don't say that lightly i really did i literally ran a marathon to get away from it but <laughs> i mean uh, I, I would um i would shy away from opening up um and certainly a lot of people that will listen to this that do know me will think my goodness really Mm-hmm. I thought I knew a different guy, and that just shows you that just shows you the type of mask that I used to wear, um, and I'm quite happy for that to slip. Aye. Certainly with you guys on it's, the it's the easy the thing to do sometimes, isn't it? You know, just to you know, I, I used to always talk and still do talk about this kind of suit of armor yeah. and stuff like that, where it's, it's yeah. easy to put that on because then you don't really mm-hmm. have to confront Aye. everything because just because you're you're scared. Mm-hmm. Well, I know I was you're scared of what might happen, you know, and how, aye, when exactly. that mask goes away, what's left of you? You're right, aye, you're right, and and a few of the stories that I'll get into shortly. I mean, stuff for me, Michael. I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm quite embarrassed mm-hmm. at, at how some of my uh, some of my life stuff that I got up to um, during the years, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the sort of depths that I went to, um, but. I'm more than happy to share that with you guys. And, and I, was just, um, I think it's yeah, time to tell the story. Isn't it amazing when you reach that point? It's almost. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I was speaking this morning to a group of people, and saying it's almost like that epiphany moment where you think, Do you know what, uh, I'm not, I'm not bored anymore, or I, I've, yeah. I've got to this stage, whatever it may be, in age or experience, whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I'm going to do it, and and I, I think it's fantastic uh, that you've done it, Paul. So well done. So thank you, Paul. Tell us a wee bit about. Uh, about yourself and your background then? Aye, well, I was born in 1976, um, so 44 years of age now, but um, I was born in uh, Mary Hill in Glasgow, um, and more or less from day one, I was raised by my gran and granddad. So, um, mum and dad, not really sure what happened back then, 
um, in respect of me being handed over to my grandparents. But to be fair, it was a bit of a godsend, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Um, being brought up, my grand and granddad had a, a, real, a real good upbringing um, and real structured upbringing, you know. Yeah. Um, and certainly they instilled a lot of the, the core values that I've even got today, you know, with respect and, and being a disciplined person and all the rest of it. Um, although I did um, certainly uh, go off the radar in respect to that for, for many years. But no, I had a, had a fantastic upbringing, my granny and granda, um, me and Tommy, um, back in uh, 76. And I stayed with them for, for many years, you know. So, What was it like growing up in Mary Hill? It was, uh, it was, it was good. It was, it was like, um, you know... It was it was different, I suppose, in respect of you know there wasn't a lot of money um, around um, back in the day, but back then we weren't really interested in material goods, were we? It was all about you know how many mates you had, and, um, aye, yeah. thirty five aside in the local park, and and that's the sort of thing that we did, and of course went to um, St Joseph's High, uh, sorry, primary school in Woodside, and then after that, then moved on to um, St Mungo's Academy. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the toughest schools in Glasgow in the East End, I would say. Um, back back when back when I went into first year, you know, it was a bit of a rude awakening. You know, you're thinking, my God, why did I choose this school? You know, this is mad. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that was going on, there was hit lists and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> I was nuts. Uh, you get lost nuts. in the first year of secondary school, isn't it? You know, it's kind of, as you say, it's awakening. And you go aye. from the innocence of primary to what happened. Absolutely. And, absolutely. And I was a pretty quiet guy, to be honest, mm-hmm. I more or less kept myself to myself. I was really into my sport, um, my fitness and stuff like that, even from a very early age. Um, and I just wanted to try and get through school um, unscathed as much as possible. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time that wasn't, that wasn't possible because there was a lot of fighting and stuff in school mm-hmm. that you know, I think a lot of boys um, back then um, went through. Uh, that was just the way, that's the way it was in secondary. Um, certainly out in uh, St Mungo's in the East End, it was, it was definitely that, that you know. Um, there was a lot of gang fighting involved. We were all part of gangs and all that sort of stuff. It was the serious stuff, you know. There was no weapons involved, but that's the sort of thing that we were doing. We were, we were always caught up in these sort of skirmishes and fights and all the rest of it. That Almost I just like thought the, back then, that's what you've done. That's the Glasgow, isn't it? I mean, I come from Aye. the Gorbals and Castle, and both really renowned for that sort of culture away back in the 70s and early mm-hmm. 80s as well. And it kind of, mm-hmm. in Glasgow anyway, it was almost like a rite of past. You kind of had to be involved in some of those things to kind of get through it. Aye, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, and there was a lot of um, bloody heads and stuff like that as, as going through school. But I mean, I didn't enjoy school, if I'm being honest with you. Um, I never put a lot of effort into it. Um, always had something in my head that I was going to either be a professional footballer or I would do something in my life mm-hmm. um, that didn't involve taking exams um, and, mm-hmm. and certainly that's something that I never really put a lot of effort into to be honest I always showed up and turned up and all the rest of it but I never put as much effort as, as what I could have done in my schooling that's for sure So is that what then because like, I know you were then you joined the military is that right? Aye, aye well it was about the age of um, about the age of 16 I really started, just when I turned 16, I really started getting serious about joining the Army, Jenny. And there was a just a very quick story of, I remember being in um, a class, it was a teacher called Mr Blair at the time, it always stands out in my mind, like an anchor, um, where he was going around the class, and there must have been 30, 35 pupils in the class, um, and he was asking everyone, what do you want to do when you leave school? And they come round to me and asked the question, so Paul, or I think he called me Elliot, so Elliot, um, what are you going to do when you leave school? 
I said, I'm, I'm going to be a soldier. And the whole class just burst out laughing. <laughs> Everybody just found this so funny that I would leave school and I'd go in the military or into the army um, at the age of 17, because that's what I said I was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that really sticks out in my mind to this day and how everybody just laughed in my face when I had this sort of idea of doing something with my life. I'm saying it's the best career to take, but I just wanted to make, I wanted to make my gran and granddad proud of me um, mm-hmm. more, more than anything because um, they'd really put everything into me growing up as a young guy um, and I wanted to be able to give something back that they could say they were proud of. Mm-hmm. So that's what I decided to do. Um, I said, well... You use that you almost can... as like the determination mm. to... Determination to go and exactly. Do it. it was quite stubborn, to be fair, Michael. I was I was quite stubborn in that respect. Um, where, you know, if I was told um, that I wouldn't have been any good at a certain thing, then I would have always tried um, yeah. as much as I could to to try and get myself to that particular destination. And and at that time, it was it was joining the military. Um, and I always remember going up to the careers office in Maryhill um, and the first, the, you go through a series of tests and stuff like that and um, you've got to set tests before you go into these um, mm-hmm. different careers and uh, I went in, passed the test and stuff and I sat down in front of this guy um, with a uniform on and I was really taken by it but I was thinking, my goodness, I'm actually here in front of a soldier and I was mm-hmm. only 16 yeah. uh, and he said to me, you're not ready um, what he does, come back in a couple of years and see me. Um, and I was almost in tears in front of the guy. I was like, yeah. a couple of years? I said, mm-hmm. I'm here to join the army today. And I think that's what I was saying to him. I was saying to him, you know, I'm here to join today. What do you mean a couple of years? He says, you're nowhere near ready, son. On you go, shut the door behind you. So I went home and I was really upset my grand and granda. My wee granda was ex-RAF um, in the mm-hmm. Second World War. Um, so he said to me, look, son, you want to join the army? I said, we'll be part of the test. Get yourself back yeah. up to that careers office in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I did. I went and chapped in the door of the Maryhill careers office um, and uh, the, the, the soldier let me in to um, discuss. You know, He said to me, were you not here yesterday? And I told you to come back in a couple of years. And I said, aye, but I'm here to join the army today. And he says, good, take a seat, you're ready. And I think that was a wee test. I think that was a test for him to say, you know, is yeah. this guy serious or not? So that was that sort of will to I won't be told no. If I want something, I'm going to go after it. Um, and mm. luckily or no luckily for me, um, I got accepted. And uh, I joined um, the army um, just when I turned 17 years of age. Um, just just a baby. Be, just a baby. I'm, I'm going to say that, Paul. I mean, I, I know what I was like at 17. And I, <laughs> I, I know. Working, I, I know. I the thought of ever, you know, I, just because I'm a civilian, I've ever been able to step into that environment for for me because I know what I was like and yeah. I mean, that that must have been incredible. Well, I can't even describe what I think it might have been daunting. It's probably an underestimation. It was that like seventeen, you know? It was. Um, I was. I just had it in my head that I was going to do this. So um, the 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 first day of actually joining the military, um, and we went to a place in Surrey called the Pub Right. And anybody listening to the podcast that's ever been to pub right will know that when you do six months of basic training in pub right, that's is serious stuff. You know, it's not you know you're not playing games at this point. You're going in mm-hmm. with you're going in with men. I was the youngest guy to to start, but I always remember the first day when I was going up to the the actual uh, guard room. I had my hands in my pockets and I went up. It was in April at the time. I'd, I'd turned seventeen in the the February, um, and it was April. I think it was the twenty fourth April. I joined the army. Um, and I went up to the guard room. I always remember looking at them. It was these soldiers, big, 
had massive guys with guns, and I'm thinking, my God, I'm actually here. And I looked up to the guard room um, with my hands in my pockets, and I said, and I looked through it. The guard room, if you can imagine, is just a wee slat in the wall. Um, mm. And I put, I sort of peered through, and I said, hello. And he says, can I help you, son? And I said, yeah, my name's Paul. I'm here to join the army. And he said to me, is it cold outside, son? I said, well, not particularly. He says, well, get your hands at your pockets, that type of thing, right? So my family that had dropped me off, um, they're all waving because they can't see what's happening. They're all waving as if, hi, have a nice day now, you know? And I'm literally there. I'm literally there. I've just turned 17, a baby, and I've just been told to get my hands at my effing pockets um, and, you know, just wait there. Um, somebody will be coming to get you very shortly. So this was a Sunday, I remember. There was a guy called Corporal Day, and they had these pace sticks. They still use them to this day, I think. Um, it's, it's for marching, basically. I'm not boring to tears mm-hmm. with that type of thing. But I always remember the, the, the um, Corporal Day coming and said, uh, Elliot, I said, yes. And I was calling him son. He said, don't call me sir, I work for a living. He said, follow me. So he's pointing this pace stick at different things, you know, different objects like grass or um, whatever it was on the, uh-huh. in the parade square. And he's saying... That's a no-no. That's a no-no. So he's pointing at other things. That's a no-no. And he's not explaining what a no-no is. And, he's, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, what's a yes-yes? What can, I, <laughs> what can I actually do here, Jenny? What are they going to allow me to do? And do you know what? Over the, over the period of time that I was in basic training, you never done very much on your own. You were literally ordered everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I'll tell you now, that was literally a rude awakening. That was... That was a case of, oh my goodness, what have I done? You know, what have I done? And I think it's interesting, kind of going back to when you were saying about get, um, your gran and granda bringing you up, and the two core values you mentioned was respect and discipline. Yeah. Now, if, if I had to, to guess the two core values that were absolutely essential in joining the army, it would be respect Aye, and discipline. Definitely. So it was almost ingrained in you slightly before, before you got there. Which, mm-hmm. um, I suppose that didn't help, though, with everything that no. was, you were ordered to do everything. Yeah, I exactly. I think I think the the, the physical side of um, your basic tra- or, or military life, the physical side, we always say it's a, it's just really a starter for you. The emotional side of it, though, I just cannot mm. put any words. Um, mm. Emotionally, um, how how draining it was. Uh, it was it was so tough. Um, you had you know, it was fifty six guys there that started um, in, in the troop. It was Dalton Troop. I remember the name of it. My goodness, it's all coming back now, isn't it? Um, mm. And there was 56 he started. And the testosterone levels, oh, my goodness. It was frightening. Um, you would have, you know, at the drop of a hat, there'd be a fight. The, you know, because people were on edge all the way through. Yeah. Um, over the course, you had a weekend off. Um, and, you know, it was just... Going through the training emotionally, it was so draining, and I've never admitted it before. Um, but I'm prepared to do it now. I remember um, at night, uh, bedding down at night, late at night after a, a long, long hard day, and I used to cry myself to sleep every single night, every night without fail. I'd cry myself mm-hmm. to sleep, um, and I would. T- on some occasions, I would write my resignation note. Um, with a view to hand into one of the, the full screws or corporals as they call them, sergeant, whatever you may. Um and in the morning I would I would wrap it up and get back on with it again. I, I really do not know how I'd done it. 
I do not know to this day, but I managed to get through it, that's for sure. Do you think the emotions behind the, the being upset, which is perfectly natural, perfectly normal, I, you know, normal you, but I suppose it, as a soldier, you I, kind of don't really want to I homesick, but... Michael. Absolute. I missed my grand so much. I missed her so mm-hmm. And even talking about it now, um, it's making me feel, you know, a wee bit emotional talking about it because I actually missed her so much. It was even things like, you know, um, I used to watch EastEnders with her. You know, <laughs> oh my goodness. I used to watch it and the, the, the theme tune. So in the barracks, there would be a TV set. And if EastEnders would come on, I would have to, you know, just try and either go to the toilet or, or I'll try and get my head in my covers or something and, and be in tears. Mm-hmm. It just, the homesick was just unbelievable. Um, and then dealing with all that stuff and, and, and dealing with, you know, um, um, your, your, your basic training in the military, it was emotionally draining um, and physically. Uh, I was as fit as a fiddle, my goodness, don't worry about that. But well, that's what, you know, oh. I think from a... a kind of layperson perspective, I think you could prepare for a level of fitness and I'm not saying it would be army fitness, but you could prepare for a level of fitness mm-hmm. and that's one side of it, but I don't think you can ever pre- prepare for the emotional no. part of it and I'm sure, no. you know, as you continued on in your life, that was still difficult as well, mm-hmm. but you can prepare physically, but you can't prepare your emotions. No, you can't, you can't and uh, until you throw yourself into the deep end like that, because that's exactly what you're doing um, whether you go there at 17 or whether you go at 26, because we're taking guys up to the 26 years old um, you are, you're throwing yourself into the lion's den and you're, you're in amongst other guys that are in the same boat um, some people just seem to handle it a lot better maybe, mm-hmm. maybe I looked as if I was handling it maybe mm-hmm. um, I remember a, a, another story um, of during my basic training I think we were in the I think it was maybe the second or third month um, and I was in a, uh, a, a they used to call it beastings so the, the, you'd be in doing a, there'd be a beasting happening where the whole, I know the, the language is shocking, but that's what they used to call it back then. Um, and I, I don't know if they still refer to it as that these days, but you're in, we were in a gym hall and we were getting the beasting from these PTs um, or physical training instructors, the military ones. And it was so intense, guys. It was unbelievable. I mean, I was 17. I was really, really fat, but my God, they could break you. Um, and you know these these um, horses you can jump over, and the, the deal was you put your two hands up, your two hands up, and you would spring springboard almost over um, with your with your knees over the horse, and you would come over the other side, and you would land, and then you would go. But you were getting hammered so hard. I mean, your energy levels mm-hmm. were sapped. You weren't thinking straight. And I went up onto this horse and banged my knee. I think it was my left knee. Um, banged my knee off the the very top of it. And I literally, my knee just went like a, a size five football straight away. Um, and I was up, I was crying. Um, and the staff were saying to me, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? You know, I said, my knee. I said, I said, I've completely done my knee. He says, keep going, keep going. I said, I can't keep going. I just literally could not stand on the thing. Um, so it transpires. I ended up in hospital that evening. Um, and the next the next day, and this this goes back to the mindset. And I think you know, you know sometimes you connect yeah. these dots come back the way. And I'm thinking, my goodness, that's a strong mindset I had back then because I ended up in hospital with this knee. One of the full screws came in and told me the next morning. He says, "Your journey's over." He said, "You you know spoke to the doctors, and you know there's no way you can continue with training." Um, and I was breaking my heart again. It was just an emotional roller coaster. I'd done so well so far, and he said to me, "Well done." He shook my hand. Uh, says you you've done so well and it's just unfortunate it's had to end this way. 
I stayed another night in hospital. The next morning, I signed myself out of the hospital. Must have been about half past five in the morning. Mm. And when the um, parade square was getting filled up with the soldiers and the Dalton troop, um, I was there standing before the troops came out, um, standing at attention. And uh, the, the staff came up to me and says, what are you doing here? I said, I'm continuing. And they never even, they never said, yes, you are. No, you're not. They just, okay, that's fine. And I just continued and I took pain. Mm-hmm. I just went through the pain barrier with it and I continued with that. So I think thinking back to that that moment in time, it just shows you that, you know, I had a sort of stubborn mindset, whereas if I really put myself and mm-hmm. my heart and mind to it, I could, I could more or less achieve anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So what about when you were in army life after you got uh, through that well, the, early period? You'd, you'd done some tours? Aye, like uh, mainly Northern Ireland. Um, but the uh, finishing up with the, um, just before going on to tours and stuff, Michael, was there was 56 started and there was 16 passed out at the very end, um, which was which was, was an amazing feat for me. Young, youngest guy there at 17, so I managed to, managed to make it through. Um, and then, and then after that was probably one of the most uh, surreal experiences of my military career was that I was then posted to a place called Deep Cut. Now, Deep Cut um, was literally about two or three miles away from Pub Right, where I'd done my basic training. But Deep Cut was a holding trip um, or a holding area for soldiers waiting to be posted out to their working unit. Mines was in that fact, mines was going to be Germany. Um, my first working unit, but Deep Cut was was a it was a horrible place. I mean, I it gives me shivers up my spine talking about this place. It really was horrible. You were day on day off guard. I used to say, and this is I used to say it back then as well. And for a young guy saying this type of stuff, I'd say if you're ever going to kill yourself, you'd kill yourself at Deep Cut. What sort of things that I say? Mm-hmm. What sort of things mm-hmm. that I say? Um, and then of course, people started being killed or killing themselves on the gates as we were doing the guard duties. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard of the deep cut murders, but I was there during that period in time. Yeah. And the uh, yeah. Princess Royal Barracks down in Surrey. Um, so the, the army, there was a BBC documentary on about it, um, and people that I knew were allegedly taking their own lives. Um, but the way that they were taking their own lives, for using an AC-80 um, weapon, it was strange the way that they were they were ending it. Um, it was almost like an execution position, the way that the rifle was being pointed down to the head, um, on top of the head. Um, and, you know, there was a there was a big investigation into the deep cut murders. And that was that was kind of almost, that was kind of normal. If you know what I'm trying to say, you're talking about normality. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how well, that was just happening. Um, so we, I was going on the, the, the gates. There was nine main gates within Deep Cut. It was massive. So you're going up on your own and you're guarding these gates, knowing that people are taking their lives or was somebody taking their lives for them? And I didn't know. Yep. And nobody knew. Um, and it was really, really scary. It was scary back then um, when that was happening. But, you know, thankfully I came through that stage of my, um, of my career in the Army. Um, but some of the stuff that was happening was just was just unexplainable. Yeah, I, I, I remember hearing about it, and, and I'd kind of forgotten about it just until you said the the name of the you know the mm-hmm. place there, and then I thought oh, I'm all hearing stuff about that. So that must have kind of been a, a really difficult time, full of uncertainty, and then 
Um, I got posted on. Uh, first posting was to Germany, um, and uh-huh. again, um, still a young man, um, hadn't even turned eighteen yet, and I was uh, posted off out in a working unit in the Münster in Germany, um, in which I would spend six months um, of my career in the army uh, out in Münster. Uh, going to Münster, I was I was travelling myself, so there was other people um, within you know um, this work. Uh, this unit at Deep Cut were getting sent all over the place. I just so happened I get sent to um, to Minster on my own. Um, and I remember getting into the guardhouse um, and I reported into the guardhouse and they, it's basically just, it's all soldiers that are there uh, and regimental police staff, which are just soldiers as well. And um, they just told the, the, or the where the armband um, of RP. And uh, I remember... <laughs> just going in and the, the first thing that the guy said to me he says you're you're private Elliot I said yep he says don't worry um and nig beastings don't happen here anymore and I'm thinking what the hell's a nig beasting no seriously I'm thinking I've not been prepped for this mm-hmm. and I, I don't know when I'm glad they don't happen anymore but why would you bring that up and what is it well mm-hmm. a nig beasting is actually new in Germany or new in green beasting so I'm thinking well I knew about the bullying side of things and I knew that I was to expect that because that was in my mindset. Uh, listen, you go to a working unit, you're going to be bullied. You just take it. Take your first mm-hmm. bullying um, and then after that, once you've taken your first bullying, then you can stand up for yourself. So I'm thinking maybe it's something to do mm-hmm. with the bullying. Um, it transpired that evening. Uh, I got a, a, bit of a, a bit of a fright as to what an egg beasting was. Um, so up in my room, on my own, um, the door's getting hammered at three o'clock um, with, remember this, uh, would you believe one of the guy's names was Ned? <laughs> he was he was for Leeds. <laughs> um, and the other guy um, was a guy called Russ Bailey. Um, and he was one of the senior privates at the time. Um, he was a bully. Uh, and I'll no mince my words by saying that. This guy was a bully. And they came into my room, got me in my, um, he was face to face with me. This is three o'clock in the morning. Bear in mind, I'm just a young man. I'm just there, two minutes, in Germany. I've got no friends, nobody, nobody to back me up, nothing. And he's staring in my face saying, you're scared of me, aren't you? And I was scared of him, but I said no. And the other chap, Ned, saying, he's mm. not scared of you. And he's saying, you are scared of me, aren't you? I've been always been told, you take your first beating or your first bullying session. Mm-hmm. And they put me outside. Now, bear in mind, these were all World War II blocks that we were in, um, barracks that we were in, Portsmouth barracks. Um, and they hung me out in my, about two floors up, um, hung me outside uh, the window of my room in my sleeping bag overnight from three in the morning till, I don't know, six, seven in the morning the next day until I get pulled up um, from the, uh, the RSM, who's a regimental sergeant major who would come in doing the block inspection. Uh, the next night after that, I was then put in my locker and pushed down all the stairs. All that stuff was going on. So that's serious bullying going on. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, it wasn't people yeah. screaming in your face at this point. This is physical violence now. Um, and it was it was horrendous. It was horrendous. I'm thinking to myself, I, if you think about it, you join the army, be the best. And they've got folk throwing you about. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got folk physically abusing yeah. you. Um, absolutely shocking for what was no very much in a salary um, and you were le- you'd left home mm. for this for this army. What was it all about? Mm-hmm. I, I was literally I was I was confused um, and I was I was 
if I thought I was homesick during basic training, that was just heightened way through the roof um, by, yeah. by feeling mm-hmm. all alone and not having anybody there. Um, that, that really I could open up to, that would understand how I was feeling. There was probably so many other people that were feeling that way, but maybe everyone just kept it to themselves. It's about a macho environment, you know? Sure. Yeah, of course. And I don't... I, I know, obviously, you'd kind of been homesick in, uh, during your training and wrote in your resignation mm-hmm. letter and things like that and ripped it up the next day. Is that even a possibility when you're then... Have been posted, no. uh, or do you just? No, nah, you need to get at that point. You're doing a minimum three years. Um, once you're eighteen, before you're eighteen, you do any time before the eighteenth birthday. You're doing for the Queen, apparently. That's what you're told. Um, and thereafter that, it's a minimum of three years. So there, there's there's none of this. Even although you're writing resignations, they never let you just. They don't pump all that money into training you. And then you, you know, I just signed the resignation letter. I'm just going to give in. I'm just going to leave now. It doesn't work like that. It really doesn't, uh, Jenny. Um, but you know, That's horrendous that anyone would need to to put up I, with that. It I, really, really is. You know, and and again, it was kind of like this is normal. This is this is what. And I suppose that adds to the mindset, Paul, of why. And, and I and I don't know what was happening, obviously, with potential suicides or not. But if you feel trapped, that you kind of get out of something for three years, and potentially that level of extreme violence going on, you mm-hmm. can. You can understand the mindset of taking their own life. Men and Aye. women, you know, swords. Mm-hmm. Can he take it anymore? Yes, you know. um, and Aye. Aye, you don't, you don't. Um, and it's almost yeah. seen as weakness, you know, um, talking up. Or, and it's completely different nowadays, as we all know. Um, and I'm so glad to be part of what you guys are part of, in a sort of a um, real forefront of mental health and, and pushing people to, to open up if things are happening within your life or, mm-hmm. or you know, speak, speak out. You know, especially men um, who yeah. back then um, it was almost like, well, you're a man, son, pull up your, your big pants and uh, go on with it. And mm. even more so when you're in the army, you know, it's it's very much like that. Uh, that's what I was just going very to Very much like that. Um, yeah. And it's and it never stopped from there. It, it, that, that was something out of the, the, the course of my whole career and certainly even even more so when I went in tours to... To Belfast um, was mm. absolutely was nuts at times, you know, uh, running and running little sleep. Yeah, yeah. about that. I remember in my, you know, in my growing up and just kind of seeing all the stuff that was in the TV about Northern Ireland and the, the difficulties mm-hmm. or whatever they're called. But just kind of thinking, wow, it just seems like another world, but it's actually is. What, you know, I know. When it's away mm-hmm. in a plane or something. I know. But I know. Just, I always remember. We, we, my first tour of Northern Ireland, we, we, um, we were in a, uh, we, we, we all get jammed into a big Hercules, one of these big uh, uh, passenger planes. It's an RAF uh, plane, absolutely huge thing. <laughs> Honestly, you'd laugh at it, but you're, you're sitting in this thing, they make you wear your ear defenders because it's so noisy, because all the bolts are rattling that loud, you know. <laughs> you're like, oh, this is, this is interesting. Um, but I always remember um, getting into Belfast and you'd been trained um, as a soldier for for some time um, and, you know, you're, you're, you're then in a tactical situation where you're, um, you're, you're landing in an airfield somewhere in Northern Ireland and you're coming out where you've got live ammunition, you're, 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 you're in a tactical position and then everybody's in the back of a, you're more or less thrown into the back of a van, um, a blacked out van, so you wouldn't know that there's soldiers in it. Um, and I remember going to um, the first first destination, the first posting, and uh, 
uh, just beside uh, the Shank Hills Road. You'll probably be aware of that area, um, very friendly area. Yeah. Uh, so we yeah. were we were in a um, a barracks called Girwood Park in uh, just off the Shank Hill Road, and I always remember just coming out, getting out of the, getting bundled out the back of the wagon, and looking up at a big skyscraper in the distance. It was, it was really really far out in the distance. The very top of the skyscraper said IRA. I thought to myself, Oh my god, <laughs> oh no, I'm here. You know, you're literally there mm-hmm. then at that point. Um, and the realisation of um, what you're about to do or be involved in, suddenly just, it really, really hits home um, that you better really get yourself in gear um, because it's literally, you know, you don't have many days off when you're over there. There's a bit of rest, but the majority of stuff is you're going for it. Um, you're doing patrols, you're out in the armoured personnel vehicles constantly, you're you're off at different observation points, dropping off supplies to people. It's a busy, busy place, you know. A busy place. I suppose you always need to be on your guard. And I suppose the difference from, you know, being in Germany and going through all of that stuff, those guys at least were allegedly... <laughs> allegedly, aye. You know, and, and, <laughs> you know, I can laugh about it. Now. Allegedly, aye. But now you're in an environment where you know that people aye, want to do right. you a war zone, you know, there are people that if you're not on your game, as you said, mm. people want, you know, want to do you harm, and there's so many people who unfortunately lost their lives here in a whole, yeah. you know, on Absolutely. both sides, whatever it's calling it. But during that, you know, that must have been incredibly... No, no, no you can't, and you couldn't even relax when, when, yeah, when, you know? when you were in your, uh, we would call them the subs. Um, so it was um, where we were um, based uh, in this particular um uh, barracks that we were in. It was in a place called Fort White Rock. Um, anybody knows it, Fort White Rock in West Belfast. It's a it's a, a prominent Catholic area in the in West Belfast and the hills. If you had to go to the gym, uh, you had to wear your helmet, your 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 cavalry vest, and you had to uh, do a staggered run because there would be snipers on the odd occasion would take a wee pot shot down at the soldiers um, from the hills above at Fort White Rock. So that always kept you on your toes, you know. And if you heard the wee, the sort of wee whistle going past, mm-hmm. you'd be like, what the hell was that? You know, don't stop to ask any questions, just sprint. And that was you just going to, going to maybe lift some weights or maybe go to the naffy for a beer with your pals or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, a, there was a terrible incident that happened um, that I remember, and it was almost like, oh, these things happen. And it was uh, two of the boys that were on that particular tour down in the subs. Um Bear in mind, you've got live ammunition in your room, so it's not like you don't put it in an armory at night. It's all by your bedside. Um, and one of the boys was pretending to shoot his pal in the face um, and had his magazine off his, his his weapon and had a round in the chamber and shot one of the boys in the face. Um, and I, it's upsetting talking about it just now, you know, but, oh, my goodness, man, that brings back so many horrible memories for me. Um, and you're thinking, man, that's you. You just think, well, well, at the time, well, these things happen. Um, it's an accident, you know. Nobody meant it, and we just got on with it. And you're literally just getting on with your day job again. And it's very much that. Um, I know Alex has mm-hmm. kind of touched on it with, as we discussed kind of previously, that very much. It's like, yeah, let's just move no, on I... from it. Then these things happen. Mm-hmm. This is what normal is, and actually. No, it's not, really. No, it was... That sort of thing happening was just absolutely... was crazy, you know. Um, 
mm. a complete unfortunate accident that happened and um, it just shows you how when I'd said before you've got to switch on um, and they used to drill into you mm-hmm. um, always to be in your guard um, always be you know around live ammunition you've got to be switched on you you know making mistakes like that it's just it can cost somebody their life and unfortunately on that occasion that that's what happened um, and Northern Ireland was was a was a real eye opener for me, especially a boy growing up in Glasgow, um, whether you're green or blue or whatever, and you see parades and all that sort of stuff. I was involved in a lot of stuff with the RUC. I used to work with the RUC, the old Royal Ulster Constabulary at the time. They're no longer that. I don't think they're called that anymore. It's called something else. But I'd be I'd be working with these guys and some of the things you'd see. Honest to goodness, and there was there was a place called uh, in, in Belfast called uh, Divis uh, not Divis Street, sorry Templar House. Um, I've never really told the story about it, but I remember one one tour. Uh, sorry, one patrol we were getting into. Um, Templar House and it was almost like people had been warned we were coming in it must have been at 2 o'clock in the morning we were with the RUC um, and everybody I say everybody there was loads of people out waiting on us coming in um, they were throwing petrol bombs at us um, there was all sorts happening they were throwing things at Templar House it's, it's big massive flats so like, it's 20 storey flats very similar to what we get in Glasgow mm-hmm. they're throwing irons out the window and it's just landing next to your feet and you're thinking my goodness man um, and some of the things that I've seen the RUC do were they, they mm-hmm. took no prisoners by the way I'll tell you that now I wouldn't like to go over some of the yeah. stories that I've seen but again you just think well well that's what happens that, that's the type of environment mm-hmm. you've you've I mean, you're in it now, so you've just got to accept that that uh, comes with part of the job. But you know, it was uh, I'd done the maze prison as well. I guarded the maze prison. Um, I don't know if you know much about that. Yeah, so I'm done a, a three-month stint there. Okay. So how, how do you suppose, like, what, you know, the one interesting point for the Virginia now is how do you transition out of that, Paul, when, you, when you've been in that militarised zone or whatever it's called? And that mindset of my goodness, there's people who do me harm and all that. And then when you come out of the military, how how do you how do you readjust? That's a very I, good, very I, good I don't question. Know the answer to that. Um, you know, I don't know how that. I was actually speaking to one of my good friends yesterday, um, Baz Cottrell. I've not spoken to him for many years. Um, he done about 16, 17 years in the army, and we spoke about that um, yesterday in the phone. Um, literally, I don't know whether or not anything could really be done. Um, from a psychological perspective, um, mm. to get you into Civvy Street as a normal, a normal person, um, whatever that is, um, I don't know. But mm. I, yeah, absolutely. I, and I have to say this, put it in record: absolutely no support whatsoever from the military. Absolutely nothing. When I left the army, um, I mm. came out into Civvy Street. Um, there was a wee bit of a, a career advice. That was it. That was it. Um, and you come in, you, you bear in mind what you've just went through for X amount of years you've been away, and you're expected more or less just to fit back into society again. And for me, Michael and Jenny, mm-hmm. that never happened for me at all. Uh, and I don't know anybody that, that sh- uh, shared experience in the army, um, much like I did, that had an easy transition. I don't think it's I don't think it's possible um, because you're so regimented. Absolutely not. No. Everything that you have then seen over however many years that that kind of um, lasted for, it, it all will take its toll at mm. some point. Um, and I suppose for you, that did at some Aye, point. Absolutely, absolutely. So, 
I left the military and um, I couldn't go out for a, any, any of my close friends will, will, will agree with me here. They couldn't go on a night out with me without me wanting to throw a punch at someone. Um, I was very, mm-hmm. was very violent. Um, coming for a guy who had respect, discipline that we're talking about before, um, I had lost all that. So I'd drink to excess um, and I'd be drinking as much as I could and then I'd get angry and I'd just want to fight. Uh, and that happened every weekend, not just some, um, absolutely every weekend, and there'd be a punch-up. Mm-hmm. I'd probably been the receiving end in 90% of them, um, but it didn't bother me um, as long as I was getting that fix. And it was like an adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got to the point, Jenny, nobody wanted to be around me. Nobody. Um, mm-hmm. I, they, they, uh, my wife at the time, it was my uh, girlfriend back then. I don't know how she coped. I don't know how she she continued in the relationship because um, it couldn't have been nice. It couldn't have been nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at the time, I mean, I, not in any way comparable, I, I always say that phase of my life is almost like that self-sabotaging, mm-hmm. but I wanted mm-hmm. to feel something different from what I was feeling. Um, and I, I can I can only imagine, Paul, how that must have been where you go from an environment like Northern Ireland where you, mm-hmm. you can't walk down the street without being in a heightened uh, state of alert to then coming into civil life because mm-hmm. you've still got that heightened state of alert yeah, exactly. just go away because you take that uniform off and then you're in an environment where mm-hmm. you know there's alcohol and mm-hmm. whatever um, and, and it's fueling it but mm-hmm. you, you sometimes don't yeah. have control over it it's just you know, yeah. it's your mind just thinking but well, I have to do this it's the only way I have to deal with it just now because mm-hmm. as you say yeah exactly and I think the work that we do guys I think the work that we're doing now uh, and we're we're of course helping where we can in relation to mental health struggles in the world. Um, but you know, surely to goodness, um, an organisation like the British Army should have something in place for these guys that that leave the military, and at least at least an awareness yeah. to say, listen, if you go down this route and you you go to a stage where alcoholism was a total alcoholic. You know, it got to that stage mm-hmm. where, you know, I, I can't drink. So I was just absolutely, um, I was so fueled. you know. I was just, I was wanting to consume as much alcohol as I could. And I was wanting to uh, release that by a violent episode. But some some way um, of, you know, educating young guys or girls that leave the military now, or provide them with some sort of support, just don't let them go back into normal mm-hmm. day-to-day life and, and expect them to be normal and no end up in the no end up in the jail. I think the danger there, Paul. I mean, I think there's yeah. a, a twofold danger there. And again, I'm only talking as a civilian. There's a danger to you as ex-military, but there's also a danger to people mm-hmm. who you engage with as well. You know, you're a trained uh, a trained professional in what you do, and if, if potentially, you know, me as a member of public just stunning in a pub and looks at you the wrong way mm-hmm. or bumps yeah. you into you having a pint, this happens every time when you're out. It's potentially dangerous mm-hmm. uh, for for that person. So you think the the mm-hmm. army would invest some, you know, aftercare and to say, look, you know, mm-hmm. here's how you need to almost like de yeah, situations. some sort of awareness, mindfulness, um, and just give yeah. guys the tools in order yeah. to sort of take with them Definitely. wherever they go in the next stage of their life. Um, but to have nothing's just unacceptable, to be honest. And I think as well. Mm-hmm. 
essentially drugs and alcohol and things, they're all coping mm. mechanisms used by people who are deflecting from yeah. their real feelings of either depression, Jenny, anxiety, right. yeah. PTSD. So you, if you're letting it kind of go to that stage, you're, you're, then, you're then having, from the army's point of view or whatever, mm-hmm. having to deal with two issues. There's now, there's now two issues or three issues rather than just kind of dealing mm-hmm. with it from the forefront. Um, I mean, was there something for you that kind of happened and, and triggered... That you thought, right? I need to change this. Well, and... well, it went. I went as low as it could go. To be fair, Jenny, um, my drug um, abuse, alcohol abuse. Um, I was, I was actually. It was my cocaine was the drug of choice for me, um, and I'm no proud. And that's what I'm saying about mm-hmm. you know being a bit embarrassed. But I'm no proud to say it. But that's what I was getting up to. Um, I was using these types mm-hmm. of substances to know out what was going on in my head. I was going through a situation mm-hmm. with two beautiful kids, uh, two girls, um, and uh, you know my relationship was breaking down. Um, the only way that I could, um, with my wife at the time, was breaking down. And the only way to, to stop these negative feelings, thoughts and emotions um, from happening in my head and not dealing with them head on was by taking taking drugs and drink that was it and i'm being completely mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. I'll, I'll almost almost be uh, go as far as saying i was self-harming to a certain extent um because it wasn't mm-hmm. enjoyable i wasn't doing it because of you know it was a, such a great experience it was really really bad mm-hmm. it was horrible um, and anybody mm-hmm. who's thinking of, sorry sorry michael yeah. anybody who's thinking <laughs> that that's an idea to go down that route please don't because seek help before you do it um, because it's one, it'll, it'll ruin you financially, and two, um, it'll ruin your health, you know, and everybody around about you. And that's what uh, there's no fun in self destruction. I've been there, you, as Jenny Wright was saying, it's a coping mechanism, but for me, you know, on a different scale, it was, it was, mm-hmm. you know, something I wanted to do. I wanted to destroy myself because of a lot of feelings that you have, and it deflects mm-hmm. away from the feelings that you have inside you, know? and I wanted it. and Probably like yourself, made a very good job. Made a very good job of it. No, uh, no, not one, no, absolutely. And how long has it taken you to? I'm forty-four now. Um, I, I think one of the mm-hmm. just what Jenny was touching there about you know the 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 points where I actually thought to myself, I'm going to have to change my ways here, and I'm going to end up dead. Was I attempted to take my own life in Greece? Um, I was away with the family, and there was an argument, um, and I went down to the poolside, uh, and. It was about 11 o'clock at night. Uh, I ran out the door um, and uh, went to a parasol and, and, and wrapped it around my neck as tight as I could get it. And I was on, there was a chair at the time, so I was on the knees. I was on on my knees in the chair and I've I've, I've, I've attempted to hang myself. Um, now, I wasn't drinking at this stage, Jenny. Um, I was completely off sound, oh, say of sound mind. I was sober. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. drink had been mm-hmm. taken out my the equation because I knew that it wasn't working. But I was just so sad inside. I was just so heartbroken. I was just so, what's the point in, in living? You know, and I couldn't see that by me mm-hmm. taking myself, you know, checking out, so to speak, um, how that would have affected my daughters and even my wife at that stage. I just couldn't see. I couldn't. I couldn't mm-hmm. see for anybody else's perspective. A lot of people say it's a selfish act and mm-hmm. stuff. I just. I couldn't live anymore. I couldn't date anymore. I was choking. I was literally choking my life. I. I, I couldn't date. Um. I was finished, and thankfully, thankfully, 
the parasol, the pin of the parasol came out and the parasol made it landed on top of me and I looked a bit stupid. But I had a massive bruise around my neck and, and, and uh, burns in my throat. That was about a wake-up call for me, I think. So if we're looking to sort of pinpoint uh, a moment in my life where enough's enough and I really had to self-medicate myself and, and understand I'm not well. Um, I'm 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 sick, mm-hmm. um, and understanding and and putting my hands up to it and and facing my demons, that was probably the turning point for me. I would say that night in Greece. And it's a and it's a difficult thing to admit, and I, I totally admire you, Paul, mm-hmm. for speaking about it uh, so openly as you have. But at, at the time, it's a difficult time. It's a difficult thing to admit that you need help. First of all, to yourself because you. You don't really want to have that conversation no, with you your don't. own self to admit I, I need help. And then you don't, Michael. Of where am I going to he- get help from? Am I going to be judged? All of that stuff. And they, mm-hmm. that all has a, an impact on your mind. So I, I think it's fantastic that you came through that with it. As mm-hmm. you've already said, the mental strength Aye. that you had as a young boy, but finding it again to overcome the, the feelings yeah. of that suicide. But you know what I used to do, guys? What I used to do, and terrible, I don't know if you can relate it? to this. I used to point to everybody else and blame everybody else for Paul Elliott. I used to say, mm-hmm. I try to take my own life because mm-hmm. my X, Y, Z. Um, and, and I think that what I've done is, yeah. over the course of the years and the, the, the studies that I've, I've more or less had to do myself internally, um, I believe that you, know, you can walk yourself towards depression, you can certainly walk back out of it again. Um, the only person really it's going to do it for you is you. Of course, there's people there that you can talk to and give you tools, etc. But mm-hmm. ultimately, you need to be yeah. responsible for the good things that happen to you and also the bad. Um, and I accepted yeah. Um, yeah. what I'd done wrong and what my mistakes were in life. Whether it was a hard luck story or not, it was what I was responsible for. I'm taking accountability for my life sure. now. Um, okay, let's do some reading up now. Let's look at neurolinguistic programming. And that's what I've done. I threw myself into it, almost, you know, almost obsessed by it mm-hmm. um, and, and studied it. Now, I've been studying NLP for, for many years and I genuinely believe that that's one of the massive tools that I've used to, to get my life, um, not back in track, but um, even, even better than what I was previously before, even I joined the military. That's brilliant. And I think I think what you were kind of touching on there with you've kind of you can walk yourself into depression and you can walk yourself out it, and it's kind of you are accountable for it. I think as well, it's also because you can then be caught up in how guilty you feel about what you've potentially mm-hmm. put others through and and how you've treated others, and it, and it's almost about that that wee bit that's like for, forgiving Aye. yourself mm-hmm. for it. Um, so that, so because that as well, mm. and as well, um, bear in mind with the breakdown of my marriage and stuff like that. Trust me, I wasn't everybody's flavour. Um, you know, there was a lot of people out there that never had any good words to say about me, and I've accepted that um, because other people's opinion of me is no longer my reality, whereas it used to be. I used to care what people thought. Mm-hmm. And now, listen, everybody would love to be loved, but the world we live in, that's not possible. Um, you're, you're never going to go through your whole life and everybody's going to love yeah. Michael Byrne, for example. Well, I think there's a high percentage mm-hmm. of them that date, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, believe I'm the most well, and, I, and, and and as much as we're doing that, it's a real it's a real point. And see, for me, but you know, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Taking accountability is 100%. 
And I think when you have those conversations with people, you can almost, you know, I, I almost say, like, yeah, you know, I absolutely, absolutely I get all the hurt I caused and a lot of people and all the things I did. Mm-hmm. And I, like you, don't blame anyone else. I say it was me, but what I'm trying to do is a different me that wasn't, that isn't mm-hmm. that person any longer. Mm-hmm. That person's in the rear view mirror as far as can be. Mm-hmm. And but right. I still view myself as I'm, almost in recovery. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in recovery. I'm in recovery today I and I work hard you. on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm in recovery in respect of alcohol, drugs, no. um, uh, depressive thoughts. I don't think mm-hmm. I don't think I'll ever um, be healed yep. from what's went on previously. Um, I don't think that you know I'll wake up one day and it'll all be forgotten yeah. about, and you know I'll I'll never be mindful of um, doing something that you know could potentially put me mm-hmm. back in the position that was in. So I need to always have that in my head that you know what I'm not driving towards that destination. Mm-hmm. But I'm aware that there is something within me that says I need to every single day take it as every single day at a time rather than just going, you know, and just mm-hmm. being flippant about it and say, well, ah, well, I got over that. That's fine. In actual fact, yeah, I did get over it, but I'm very mindful of the fact that, you know, I could slip back into it again if I don't, you know, continue with my daily affirmations. If I don't, you know, yeah. if I don't keep working on it, I need, I need, I need structure as well. I don't know about you guys, but I need mm-hmm. to have structure mm-hmm. in my day. Um, Paul, would they be? Mm. But how, but how enlightened is that, Paul, when you, you realise those things, you know, because and, and now you realise what are the detrimental, detrimental, sorry, detrimental things that can affect your mood or your yeah. attitude and all of that, but also what the positive things are. And mm-hmm. Jen and I have said this plenty of times in that, you know, what you have to do is just really try and work on yeah, who you are yeah, yeah. today. Don't worry about tomorrow or next Friday. It's today. And if you're, right. and, and it's okay if you're, see if you're having a bad day yeah. or things are getting on top of you, that's okay because regular people that don't struggle with mental health exactly. or don't have experience exactly. that we've got have bad days as well. But what you need to do is make sure you go, yeah, see absolutely. tomorrow when I wake up, absolutely. I'm going to try and be on top of it. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Yeah, think tomorrow I'll just be bad um, again. And, and you know like what? I've had I've many I've good support network as well. Um, of guys, one of my good friends, Dave down Southampton's, yeah. um, been very good over the the my goodness, how many years now? But and he puts quite a, he put quite a good slant in it for me the other day as well. Where um, what you're talking about is we we all will have down days. It doesn't mean you're depressed. You know, it's almost um, and a good mm-hmm. wee analogy is you know, mm-hmm. I've got the flu, but I'm coming into my work today. Um, with, with, well, if you had the flu, you wouldn't be in your work, and it's almost like if you are mm-hmm. depressed, you wouldn't. Eat. And I know that Michael, you had just got your suit and tie on, you went back into your work again with your story. But if you're if you if you just don't try, what the point I'm getting is, don't talk yourself into a depression. You know, I feel depressed. I feel mm-hmm. down. I, well, in actual fact, you don't. You're having a bad day. There's a difference between depressive thoughts and having a bad day. Um, and I think it's important to be to recognise that because we don't want people just think because depression and the uh, anxiety and all these negative emotions that we can feel in our bodies is so high in the agenda now, which is a fantastic thing. It is, but also you need to make sure. That, that fantastic thing is if we're not talking people into an actual fact you feel a bit of anxiety or you get depression you're going to need to go yeah. and see the doctor potentially get sepsiline to talipram beta blockers whatever it is and I've done all that yeah exactly I, I mean yeah. it and might work for some people this. guys it yeah. might and do you know what I ain't saying but for me Absolutely. taking these types of medications it didn't work for me and um, what worked for me was you know routine um, as I said affirmations studying reading 
um, you know, upgrading yourself. I'll say to some people, you've all got the new iPhone when I'm doing these sports coaching now with the young guys at Teams. Um, everybody's got the new Xbox or whatever, and that's great. We've all got the new upgrade. But when did you last upgrade yourself? When was the last time you upgraded you? Mm -hmm. So it's important yeah. that you're mindful of that rather than just thinking, well, um, trying to pigeonhole yourself. It's like the analogy for your car, isn't it? Every year you put, you take Absolutely. your car for an MOT, you make sure the wheels mm -hmm. are, you know, you put oil mm -hmm. in, you make sure you've got water in your squishy or whatever the right word for it is. But actually, we don't do that for ourselves. When you're having a bad day or you're struggling with things, certainly for me, you just think, I'll keep going, I'll keep going, I'll keep going. Exactly. But you can only get a certain amount of miles exactly. for a tank of petrol. And then you have to do something about it. So, no, I completely agree, Paul. So you spoke there about um, sports coaching stuff. So tell us a wee bit about what you do Aye. with the uh, Mindshift experiences. I love the Aye, so um, Mindshift experiences, myself us, and uh, my fiance Zoe, um, set Mindshift, the business up, Mindshift experiences up, out of our, our, our real passion um, for uh, mindfulness and mental health. Um, we, 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 we work alongside um, the community-based clubs, um, so there's about maybe 10 to 15 clubs any one time on the books where we're working with the youth um, and we're giving, um, we're installing a bit of discipline, uh, or I'm more or less going out to the teams, um, doing elite military fitness with the guys and also um, I do a mindfulness training with them and showing them the tools and techniques um, and and encouraging them to be open and speak and talk and all the rest of it, regarding any negative thoughts, pictures and emotions they may have. Um, so we do that. Um, of course, uh, right. you know, we are now uh, involved with firewalking and empowerment, um, which has been fantastic um, mm -hmm. for, for for us and also anyone that's taken part in, in, in walking over the thousand degree hot burning embers um, barefoot. Um, so I always say um, when we're doing uh, any firewalks and before it, has anybody been to Spain here recently? Uh, and they put their hand up and they'll say, well, you've walked in the sand at 30 degrees. Yes. And you've been hobbling over the sand because it's so hot. You're going to be walking over a thousand degrees barefoot. How is that possible using the power of your mind? So that's that's a good um, temperature check, so to say, in, in, in relation to getting yourself over your fears. And the seminar before it, um, so we're doing a lot of charity work and we do a lot with charities, um, helping raising awareness for charity and also um, funds for them. And also we have a couple of um, public firewalks a year um, that we do. And it's for people to come along and, and really face their fears head on. Um, myself and Zoe are so passionate about it. We love it. And anybody who comes to the firewalks, they love it as well. Um, it's just an awesome experience. You think they're just coming along just to, to walk over the hot coals, but there's so much more to it than that. Sounds brilliant. <laughs> and how would the website... If you go on... Yes, it's www.mindshiftexperiences.net um, and also um, you can engage with us on Facebook um, at Mindshift Experiences on Facebook, guys. Um, so we're also um, neurolinguistic programmers, of course. Um, and a trained hypnotherapist as well. So I think it's a very powerful tool, hypnosis, to, to get in about the unconscious mind and, and really uh, get people the best version of themselves using hypnosis. really enjoy doing that. It's one of my, one of my many passions that I have these days. Brilliant. Sounds fantastic. Um, well, thank you, Paul, so much for sharing no that worries. story. I enjoyed it. It was good to release it. A bit of therapy for me. I hope you did. Um, 
Mm. Well, sometimes that's Aye. exactly what it is, and and that's what we we kind of use these podcasts mm. for. I mean, Michael and I get so much from them as well. So mm-hmm. um, thank you. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you very much, guys. Really.